it, it, it came from my, my boarding school years where I felt so imprisoned and so trapped and I was just my whole life since then has been yearning for freedom and adventure and I do have a quote that absolutely reflects that that I that I love and that is 20 years from now you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did do so throw off the the bow lines sail away from the safe harbor catch the trade winds in your sails similar to what you're doing now in your van life today's guest believes that hardships are an essential part of life but how we handle our hardships is a choice after surviving her own personal challenges of droughts divorce and disease she woke up to the importance of resilience for our mind body and spirit and subsequently resigned from her job as ceo of the jane Goodall Institute Australia and dived into the study of mind-body medicine, stress management and life coaching. On a mission to make happier, resilient people, she's now a well-being coach and author of Campfire of the Heart. Details to her book launch on November 26th, which supports Koala Rescue, can be found in the show notes. Episode 87, Natalie Stockdale. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Natalie. Thank you, Fiona. Lovely to be with so- you. I'm so excited to, and I'm sitting here in a van, so I'm sorry about that about that noise. And as you know, I am van laughing around Australia. And just as I started to record this, the the I don't know party next door decided to have a dinner party outside. So you probably hear some background laughter. Um, they had, it sound like they're having a lovely time. Um, so I <laughs> so I do apologise in advance for that. But I am so excited to have a chat to you because you have written a book, Campfire from the Heart, which is basically my podcast talking to people, telling stories of overcoming adversity in written form. And I'm so excited to have a chat to you. And I want to know how how the book came to pass, but also you've had this amazing, incredible life journey. Um, do you like that, that word, journey? Some people hate that word, journey. Yeah, it is. It is a journey. Um, it has been. Yeah, so you've gone from living in the outback and dealing with the drought to a marriage breakdown to cancer to – life on a yacht. So you've just had this really varied sort of sort of life. So I suppose to sort of figure out where the and why you started the book and started the wanting to write about inspirational journeys. Talk to me about sort of how that all came to pass and where it's all sort of started. Where the book came from. The book is called Campfire for for the Heart. And mm-hmm. it was really inspiring inspired by a client of mine a few years ago who was suffering from anxiety and I was a, a resilient I am a resilience coach and I remember this client who um, was in in-person consultation he was pacing up and down really suffering with anxiety and he said how do other people make the pain go away how, how do other people find happiness again and I sat with those questions for for years and and then when uh, COVID and the pandemic started and I had to uh, cancel my, my workshops, I thought this is a good opportunity to use this time to to answer those questions or to explore the answers of those questions, how other people do rise, rise from pain and find happiness again after hardship and trauma. So that's really what my uh, books answer and, and explore. So the uh, the two books actually coming out. The first one is Campfire for the Heart, which is about Australians, men and women. And the second one is called Campfire for a Woman's Heart, and that's about 25 international women and their individual stories of, of rising from hardship. So, you know, it's a, that's a very succinct way of putting it. I often, I don't know if I struggle, but it's hard to articulate sort of the purpose of the, the podcast for me, and that's, um, some people talk about, oh, is it mindset or is it sort of this and that? And how you've described it is literally with the bow wrapped up, the purpose of the podcast. So I couldn't have found a more aligned guest in terms of coming yeah, on and having good. a chat. <laughs> good. So talk to me because you, you, you wrote the book on a yacht, but you started yes. out sort of, 
I suppose, not so much worlds apart, but lands apart. You're in the outback for many years, for 20 years. Talk to me about that. Yes, I was. Well, I grew up in in um, rural Australia, in, in, in country New South Wales and Victoria, and my parents worked very hard and sent me to boarding school in Melbourne for six years, which mm-hmm. I actually loathed. I know I, I'm very <laughs> grateful that mum and dad worked so hard and their intention to send me there was was noble. They wanted yeah. to, to give their three daughters a good education. But yeah. if, to me, boarding school felt like prison. And it was in Melbourne. It is like and, prison because I'm yeah. a, an ex-boarder too and it's hard to articulate to people what boarding's like without going there. And I feel the same. Mum and Dad sacrificed to be able to send me there. Yeah. But it was a very, yes. very different experience if you've never boarded. It's very different. Yes. And it can be, and I think probably more current times, boarding school is a lot of fun because I know of people who've been to boarding school in more recent years and they've had a ball and their confidence has soared from being in boarding school but that wasn't that certainly wasn't my experience I was sent when I was 11 and oh gosh I just remember looking out the windows um when mum or dad drove away down the driveway and um pining I was really homesick Mm. for six years but I guess that um the the good aspect of of that is that it's made me it's had a mark on me. It's made me hell bent on freedom and wanting freedom and, and mm. wanting to break out, absolutely break out and be free and have adventure. So I've always sought adventures ever ever since leaving and, ch- and challenges just to break away and be free. So boarding school did certainly have that mark. So after Oh, and when when I finished boarding school, the only thing that I was certain about was that I wanted to be the freedom to be able to work anywhere I liked. I did not want to be stuck in a city, so I studied to be a teacher. Hang on, and, I just want to I just want to bring you back, Nat, because yeah. whereabouts were your parents in country Victoria? Oh, they were over in the, uh, in a town called Nil, over in the near the yep. South Australian border. Yeah. So okay, so you're that's very isolated out there, very small town in Nil. Yeah, and about five, oh, five hours from Melbourne. Do you think the boarding school you gave you a sense of wanting? It's interesting because you said that you wanted to break free and get out. Do you think it gave you? Because for, for me, it was more a sense of independence. So I therefore felt, uh, I suppose, strong enough within myself and self reliant enough within myself because you you don't have your parents that to rely on you. Yeah. You are very self-reliant at a very young age when you go to boarding school do you think that that's more that so you didn't ever question that you couldn't do these things and be independent and travel or whatever or is it just that you really felt like you didn't want to anything else would be a cage yes I wanted to fly out of the cage as yeah as as quickly as I could and my my father insisted that I study studied so I did and as soon as I was qualified I I took off I couldn't take off fast enough and I went up to the Northern Territory I just wanted to get the hell out of Melbourne <laughs> which I did and I went up to the Northern Territory and I and um and I that's taught. funny I went to the UK <laughs> did you yeah 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 it's just get away get the hell out of there <laughs> and yeah and I, and I was living and teaching in an Aboriginal community in, in the, the center of the Northern Territory and then for a year, and then I made my way over to Western Western Queensland. I loved the bush. I was attracted to the bush and the outback and the the adventures. Well, you grew up that, in the bush, so there. Mm. I grew, yeah, I grew up in the, the south of Australia, in um, the, the Riverina in New South Wales, and yeah. then Western Victoria. So it was so the south of Australia, but nonetheless the country. Cause my yeah, yeah. my heart has always been in, in the bush and the country, and I've always had this longing to be with nature and animals. That's always been a strong um, thread in my life as well. So, yeah, so from Northern Territory I, I ended up in, in Western Queensland, Longreach, and I was a governess for a year. That's teaching on, on, um, on a sheep station, uh, teaching the children of the staff who worked on, on the station. And then I... Um, what did I do? Then I, I've taught at Longreach School of the Air, which is now called Longreach School of Distance Education. So you'll need to sort of explain to people for the overseas listeners. So the difference between a farm and a station is, I don't know, several thousand square kilometres worth of land. 
<laughs> yes, yes. I think the largest station in Australia um, is you can. I think they can fit the the, UK, the size of the UK in it. Yes, the, the stations yeah. up in north, the northern Australia north, are yeah, are absolutely north. massive. Um, so, so there were a lot of on this particular station where I was a governess that was you know teaching the children of the the station workers. There were about five families and 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 their children. Um, so yeah, I did that for a year, and that was you know that was quite fun, good social life. There's a lot of young were a lot of young people in the bush in those days. And and then um, and then I worked at you know, school of the Longreach School of the Air, and there the children are spread across over an area twice the size of Victoria, and the lessons were then um, carried out on the radio and correspondence papers. So I did that did that for for um, a number of years and married. And in about 1991, the wool prices crashed and the drought had had started gripping the region around Longreach. So it, my husband, my my former husband and I saw that as an opportunity to buy some land that was affordable. So we had a big loan and bought a very rundown old sheep and cattle station thinking, oh, we're so naive. We're just full of uh, unbridled enthusiasm with a twist with a bit of naivety thrown in with it and we thought I think naivety is a wonderful thing though because I think it allows you to do a lot of things in life that you would never not normally do yeah absolutely yes so we thought um it's it's gotta rain soon and the wool prices will pick up but um it didn't rain for about about four four or five years and the wool prices didn't pick up so that there were some really really tough years at the the start of of our station life. My husband was often working away doing off station work for, for income, and I was how big was um, your station? Sixty thousand acres, yeah, mm-hmm. sixty thousand acres on the Thompson on the Thompson River. Oh, and it was 100, okay. Hundred um hundred and ten kilometers from town, from the closest town, which was which was Longreach. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that was character building, I, I suppose. It was some really tough, tough years, but I wouldn't trade them for anything because I grew resilience. I grew some resilience tools, like because I, I was alone a lot of the time. Like sometimes I was going to ask you how you dealt with your um, isolation. Yeah, it, it was easy when when my when I had company, it was yeah. it was easy, but often I was alone when, I, when my husband was working away. So I found a lot of a lot of satisfaction with my animals. Like I had my pet chooks, and yeah. an amazing cat who Tom, who would come walking me, with me when at the end of the day when the sun was setting and the the day the temperature dropped. Um, and dog, I, uh, we had a, about a handful of kelpies, of working dogs, and some Jack Russells. And a pet lamb, pet sheep, we grew up to be a sheep, and a menagerie. And we'd all go walking together down the tracks at sunset. And sometimes I'd walk with um, with a handsaw and, and cut the some mulga branches for the sheep to feed, the, to feed Basil the sheep. So my companionship with animals was, was, very, was very comforting. Social connection, um, even calling other neighbours on, on the telephone was, was very... Um, was important just to keep that social contact. Um, what else was um, gratitude? I was just so, even though life was tough, it wasn't it wasn't ideal. This was at this, we're talking about my my twenties at this stage. Um, I was just so grateful for the opportunity, for the uh, grateful for the beautiful nature, the the sunsets. Um, grateful for my husband, my friends, my health, my family. Gratitude was was always a very strong tool for for, for resilience. Did but you realize that's what it was? Could you articulate that you were being that you had gratitude and you were experiencing mindful gratitude at the time, no. or were you just because no. to me, I would think you're dealing with the isolation, you're dealing with crippling debt in terms of the drought, um, yeah. like that can be extremely overwhelming. But you're almost picturing this picture perfect sort of. Life really living with this menagerie of animals. It's yeah, my no, it wasn't, perfect life, Natalie. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it, wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah, 
Yeah, it wasn't perfect because animals were dying. And that was, yeah. to me, that was by far the hardest. There's also the financial strain that, that goes with drought. Yeah. But in addition to the financial strain is watching animals suffering. That was absolutely heartbreaking, the, in, including the native animals like the emus sometimes would, would you'd see them stuck in fences because they just didn't have the energy to push through the fences. And um, sheep, the, our um, poor old sheep would go into the to the water holes and the water holes or dams were were um became very boggy and silty because the water was evaporating so much and the water level was so low and the sheep would would go in for a drink and then get bogged and then the crows would come and pick out their eyes or wild oh, sheep uh, wild pigs would come along and and um start you know attack them and um attack them while they're still alive so my job while uh, my husband away was away, and also while I was while he was there too, was to drive around, do a water run, call it a water run, drive around the station twice in, in the morning and and the afternoon. Each water run would take about two hours, so drive around the Toyota with a gun, twenty two, and uh, pull the bogged sheep out, and the ones that could walk was wonderful. And they would, they would they would help them up, and off they would walk away into the into the distance. But there were many, many times where the sheep were blinded by the crows, and um, and I had to yeah, pull them, pull them out, and then shoot them. Or sometimes they couldn't get up because they were so weak from starvation. And, and I would, I would um, shoot them and then pull them and pull them into a, a pile of of um, carcasses. And when my husband did come home, he would burn the carcasses to reduce the risk of fly strike. So flies mm. wouldn't wouldn't breed in them. So there were, um, yeah, it certainly wasn't picture perfect lifestyle mm. all the time. But mm. and I was unconscious. Yeah, I did have uh, my resilience tools that I can reflect on now, and I appreciate now. But I, I I wasn't mindful of them. I just knew that things that made me feel good. Sometimes my my husband and I would leave tiny little miniature notes to each other and we think we'd say things like um another day closer to rain um i'm i'm so proud of the way you're coping we'll get through this just and now i see looking back there were little coaching notes and they gave us they gave um they showed they gave us encouragement they encouraged the notes encouraged each other and um when they also helped us to feel um acknowledged and and appreciated given um and i've never lived on a station i've lived in the country but nothing ever that isolated um one of the things is and i've speaking about this in my last episode because i did a sort of a recap of um the van life tour to to date sort of a thing and going through central australia and one of the things that I struggled with because I've got anaphylaxia to bees and it was the isolation and the feeling how vulnerable I was because if anything happened and I had an allergic reaction to there was a bee out there or um, a, a wasp and I had an reaction to that or a jack jumper or something like that um, and I had an anaphylactic reaction, I'm mm. dead essentially. Mm. Yes. yes. You know, you, it's not a – it's not a oh well I'll just you know and I I'm sitting here now in by the time this comes out I'll say where I am because by the time this comes out I'll be gone but um I was hanging up some washing the other day in Port Douglas and something just stung me on the leg and I ended up in hospital and so people go oh well you can mitigate the risk but you can't they're a flying bloody insect so that level yes. of vulnerability of in terms of having to deal with that okay, I know this is only going to be for a short term, but if you're living there and having that level of isolation, did you ever have that sense of vulnerability as well? Oh, yes, yes, often. Um, but on, on this topic, I'd like to share a really funny story that didn't happen to me, but it happened to one of my daughters, my oldest yeah. daughter, Sophie, who was in an extremely isolated part of Australia in the very top end of the Northern Territory. I think she said she was about an, an eight-hour drive to mm. the closest hospital and one night she was camping and as in an Aboriginal community and one night she was camping and needed to go out for a wee she was crouching down weeing 
and then a brown snake slithered <gasps> through her feet. And she was winging on a brown snake. And she was just so extremely terrifying. vulnerable. I mean, can, can you not be – I don't think you can be much more vulnerable than that. <laughs> and the snake didn't bite her. She was just so lucky. Okay, but had, so- the, had the snake bitten her, it, yeah, she would have. she would have died. But this is the thing. Okay, so this is the thing. They say you're meant to freeze when you see a brown snake, all right? And yes. you, you're fighting that flight or fr- fright, yes. flight or fright response. So you don't yes. you don't want to run, which is your natural bloody instinct. Well, it is for me whenever I see a brown snake because they are so highly venomous. Um, so she it, did she freeze or did she like what well, did she do? Weaving. She was meant to. She was, it just but are you meant to stop weaving? <laughs> What's the protocol in that situation when you wear you got a brown snake's head? In the dark. In the dark. Oh she, she, she switched on. The, she thought, oh, what is this rustling between my feet? And switched on the torch and there it was. It just went right through her, right between her feet. Mm. Oh, my God. That's Very so terrifying. Yes. yes. And and back to uh, the, the, the state, the, the – um, experiences of being vulnerable in isolation i remember i had i had three i have three daughters and they uh, they were all little when they're all tiny little girls and again my husband was working away i remember after having my third baby she was tiny i had that sense that mastitis could be um developing in my mm-hmm. in my breast so and rain was coming and i knew that if i was going to be stuck on the station with uh, a newborn baby and two little girls with mastitis alone, I'd be in trouble. So I remember calling the nurse um, from a little town called Isisford. There was a medical clinic there and, and said there's a big, big rain coming. Um, Finally. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is this is actually when we moved to a different place where it rained. It's called Hone and Downs near Isisford and it rained and we actually we had floods, which which were wonderful, but um, I mean good good floods, manageable floods. But um, yes, I remember calling the nurse and saying that the big rain's coming, and there's always the risk of being bogged on the road. You see, so mm. she came out with a to the edge of the bitumen, and the bitumen was an 80, 80 kilometer drive from our station to the bitumen. So she came out with a policeman in the in the police car to the to the bitumen. And we could actually see the really dark, dark clouds coming. And I sped with the, all the little girls in the car with me and sped along the dirt, got to the bitumen, and the, the policeman turned his head away while the nurse gave me a, a quick um, breast check. And I, got, I, I probably took about 60 seconds. And she said, yep, could be mastitis. Take these. So she gave me some antibiotics. And then it, we both took off in different directions. I went back to the station and, and they went back to town and made it at home just before the rain started coming down so um being being prepared being um being prepared for um for, for disaster um was always something that we we had to do yes i think it's very much um compared to living in the city even just driving through and visiting the communities in such level of isolation out there and it is vast in terms of everything there's really no other way of explaining it um you can see how you're very much dependent on the weather in terms of being locked in somewhere having to be prepared being the drought floods yeah very dependent on it more so than than what you realize being in the city absolutely because the roads Mm. the condition of the roads affect whether you can be somewhere, travel somewhere or not, because most most of the roads are, are dirt and black soil dirt. Um, once it once it rains, becomes extremely slippery, and it's you know it's very very easy to get bogged. So was, just plan your life when, around the weather. We were when we were driving through there, we had massive rains in um, South Australia outback, going through. Now we were on the Sturt Highway, so it was fine. But you can pull off, and a lot of the pull offs when we were sort of getting to the end of the day to, to sleep were dirt pull-offs. And I said to my husband, we can't pull off because look how much they're flooding. And you'd go to sleep in dirt and you'd wake up and you'd be 
bogged and I was like, well, I don't want to spend the next day digging yeah. ourselves out in 40 degree weather. Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, it is, it is a reality in terms of, in terms of that. Yes. So but when you do talk- live, live in the outback and, sorry, or, and like in your case, traveling through the outback, it, doesn't it make you appreciate all the, um, the, the luxuries that town and city people have, like yes. good roads and like wheelie bins? <laughs> well, the, yeah, yes, it's interesting because I think that there's a certain sense of because the population is more in the centre in in cities and along the east coast, it's like the politicians don't really care about everything else because they're not going to get the vote, so the roads don't get serviced as much, and yeah. you know, there's just you can just tell there's not as much funding out there. Um, yes. Yeah. yes, which is which is understandable. And schools, you know, too, too, of course, schools are something that I'm always, it was always when we did move south, having, a, I remember being so grateful, so grateful for having the opportunity to send my girls to a normal school so I didn't have to, didn't have to teach them at home any longer. You didn't just whip them into school of the year? No, when you're on the and 10 Ks from town. So, but I taught them at home from school oh. as, as, as a mother. But no, yeah, 110 kilometres from town. It was on, on mostly dirt road. So it was an hour, about an hour and 20 minutes each way. So what made you leave um, living in the outback? Um, my husband at the time actually had enough of sheep and cattle um, mm-hmm. and grazing. So, so we decided, it was actually a really interesting part of our, our life. We thought, what? what would we like to do? We actually paused um, and thought, what would we like to do with our lives now? And we actually didn't really know, but we thought it would be a good idea to follow our individual hearts. And I was all, I'd never sailed before and I'd always had um, a dream of swimming with wild dolphins. So I took off to the Bahamas to swim with, with dolphins and and while I was there, I was actually arrived at the same time as a uh, hurricane, Hurricane of Rita. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't, act, I wasn't able to actually swim with the dolphins. But after the hurricane passed, I was able to sail with them. And it was the first time I'd ever been on a yacht, first time I'd ever been with dolphins. And I just loved it. I, I just, it felt so enlivening. And I remember the dolphins swimming and playing as, as we sailed and turning over and making eye contact. It was just um, life-changing. And mm. seeing their little, their little baby dolphins with their pink bellies, I just thought I, just, I was just so full of joy and, again, gratitude. I, so when I returned, I, I was um, clear that I wanted to live by the ocean and it happened to work with my husband's plan too he he also had had a really positive experience with his thing and so we decided to move to new south wales and to the coast of new south wales and i bought a a yacht and started a sailing um a, a sailing business eco business i took people sailing with whales and, and dolphins on the yacht and life whereabouts were you in eden sort of area yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Near, near Eden. Yeah, and the girls went yeah. to a normal school, and I was yeah, I was so happy and so grateful for mm. everything we had, and life was really was um, idyllic. In fact, one of my girlfriends used to call our home Happy Valley because we're on, on a lovely property on on a river that ran into the sea, and we had the menagerie. We had our horses from Queensland, and had two pet pigs at that stage that I adopted from Charlotte's Web. They played Wilbur in in um, the oh, movie Charlotte's Web. Oh wow! Uh, and the pigs How were just random. So, <laughs> <laughs> they, the pigs used to run around and just completely uh, free ranging with with the horses and and um, and they had the dogs with chooks. Um, we even had a, a milking cow. So. Yeah, like, and, and my sailing charter business. So I was um, very, very happy, very. Uh, and then my marriage suddenly took a an unexpected turn. My it my marriage ended, and everything. Then um, my world really 
turned upside down. That, so that was in that was in two thousand and nine. The marriage ended. How did you start off? Yeah, yeah. How yes. did you sort of emotionally pick yourself up from that situation and sort of carry on? You've got three three daughters. How old are they at this stage? Yeah, uh, twelve, nine, and seven. They were hmm. twelve, nine, and seven. Yeah. yeah, I I didn't cope with it very well. To be honest, mm. um, while I was figuring out what to do, I, I moved into town um, to a lovely little town where the girls were going to school, just in a little rent rented house, and I did some volunteer work while I was wondering what am I what am I going to do with my life now? I had to sell sell the yacht and and the property that we had for for settlement, so. And it was not a good time to do it. It was yeah, 2009, the GFC year, so lost, lost, yeah. you know, lost a lot of money financially. Um, so I have since learned that when, you're, when you harbour a lot of stress and harbour a lot of negative emotions, which I did, it, it does affect your, your not only your memory but also your decision-making capacity. So mm. in that state where, where I was highly distressed I made a decision of all things to go to Melbourne and I think I might have mentioned at the start of my boarding school I I loathe cities it's just because it does remind me of boarding school so but with my decision making um, impaired decision making capacity then I thought I'd, I wanted security so I thought if I go to Melbourne I will find a good job it's just thinking mm. of security and I also wanted to role model working for the a work ethic for my for my three girls. Mm-hmm. So that's why I went. I um I was by that stage I had a postgraduate degree with in animal welfare from Monash University, which I did remotely. So with that degree, I was offered a position as a, a humane educator or or an animal welfare educator is another name for it. So I went down to Melbourne for for that job, thinking that it was it was the best. Um, the best decision at at the time, but but it wasn't. You know, I in hindsight, I wish I made another decision. It was so traumatic. I remember driving. Well, the, my girls didn't want to come with me. They wanted to stay in this their surrounds, and um, I completely understand they didn't want to go to a, a city and live in a in a rented house with a mother working full time from where they've come from. It was mm, way a too shoebox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way. Yeah to um foreign for them so they wanted to stay in their their familiar surrounds so i remember driving down to melbourne which is about a seven hour seven eight hour drive and seeing seeing the girls huddling together in the rear vision mirror crying it was most heartbreaking one of the saddest um moments i've ever experienced driving away but i i just promised them it's only temporary and we'll all be back together again some someday somehow. So off I went, and and um, I was a humane educator. And about ten months after I was in Melbourne, I discovered that I had cancer. I had I had breast cancer, so that was a blow. Um, but I, yeah, survived. Um, survived. I remember my my girls. Came down to Melbourne. My my husband, my ex husband, brought them down, and they lived not far from Melbourne, just in the in the Yarra Valley Valley area outside of Melbourne. And I remember after my mastectomy and my major operation, mastectomy and rebuild in in one operation, they came to see me a day later, and I was I was like an octopus. I was all battered and tubed up, and not in a good state at at all. And um, and I remember that he came into the ward, and they didn't want to look at me because I was so battered, and I didn't. It was hard for me to see them distressed. So it was such an awkward moment. And then my middle daughter Eliza just instinctively knew what to do. She brought her her flute into the hospital ward, and she pulled out a flute. She sat down at the on the floor at the end of the bed, so she didn't have to see me in my battered state, and she began playing the flute. And she filled filled the room through her music. She filled the room 
with just what we needed, which was just which was love. I remember that was probably one of the one of the better memories of of my cancer experience. Do you think, though, in hindsight, that decision which you said was not the correct one in terms of coming down to Melbourne? Do you think, though, that, that decision enabled you to have greater access to healthcare, being a high density of hospitals and population and so forth, so therefore helped with that treatment compared to being on the New South Wales coast and you've really only got one hospital which doesn't really have the greatest reputation? I think that I'll never know if I'm right or wrong about this, but I do believe that had a if I didn't go to Melbourne, I may not I may not have developed cancer because what I know now is that authentic, living with authenticity is is very is so important to our mind and our body. And mm-hmm. so by going down to Melbourne, I was living inauthentically. My my outer world, which is the city, traffic, um, I was so lonely and disjointed from everything I loved, my, my family, my um, my animals, nature, everything, ocean, everything that I I loved, I was disconnected from. And when you and when you when your outer world is disconnected from your inner world, that that does create stress, and stress does open the door to disease. So mm. I actually believe that possibly I would not have had cancer had had I not moved to Melbourne and had. I also believe that I may not have had cancer or opened the door to cancer if I had better managed my stress. But I wasn't aware of this at the time. I didn't. Mm. I, I I didn't have um, a, a conscious set of resilience tools that that I certainly do now. I was doing my mm. best. I'm not meaning to blame myself, criticize myself, but. I wish I knew then what I now know about the importance of having a robust set of resilience tools to draw upon in times of need. Well, I don't think it's a matter of blaming yourself. I think that I think that you can be wishful in terms of thinking of if I had the, the skill set now or the knowledge that I had now then, yeah. then, and I think that's, normal. I, I don't think it comes yeah. across as blaming yourself at all. Um so how long was it how long have you been in remission for now? Well that was two thousand and ten, so now in twenty two, so it's been Wow, 12, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. I am, yeah, I am grateful for each birthday that I I have since I've had since. Yeah. How has it changed your perspective of life going through something so significant as breast cancer? It didn't change me much at the time because I carried because I hadn't learned the lessons at the time. I didn't tune into the lessons at the time. I uh, I had about five five up five surgeries, and the cancer was was thankfully removed. Um, I, I chose not to have other the other treatments, but um, that's just it's very much a personal choice. But I was so grateful to have uh, recovered, and and then I carried on with. With work, actually, I did go to Africa very quickly to take my while I was recovering. I remember I didn't want to to stay at home and feel sorry for myself, so I wanted to help and and I helping others and acts of service for others is a, is a powerful resilience tool in itself. But again, I did this unconsciously, but I went over to Africa and helped with an in an animal welfare campaign for for a little while, and then came back and and then I worked for the the for the Jane Goodall Institute and became the the CEO of the Jane Goodall Institute Australia which is um which is about promoting compassion for all life on earth with a particular interest in chimpanzees so mm-hmm. I did that for about 4 years but I was also I kept asking myself why did I get cancer when it, it's never been in my family history um I breastfed all my babies till about 15 months I really did have a a low risk, and that's when I started joining the dots between. Does breastfeeding stress. reduce the risk? Does it? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started joining the dots between 
uh, resilience and and stress. So resilience being a, a, an antidote for stress. And the uh, um, uh, yeah, I wanted to really figure out why I had cancer, so that or to, to re- reduce the chances of it returning. So I, I liken cancer to having a snake in in the house. I had a snake in the house, and thanks to the amazing surgeons, the snake was removed from the house. But I wanted to figure out how it got in the first place, so that it, to, to reduce the chances of it, of it coming back. So that's why I resi- after about four years, I resigned from my job and dived into the study of mind body medicine and stress management therapies and and um, life coaching as well. I did a lot of personal development work and and um, have identified about 25 tools for resilience that I that I now draw upon when life challenges crop up they, they always do it doesn't when you have a, a bank of resilience tools it doesn't mean that you're you're immune to hardships it just means that you're you can be better prepared prepared for them so what were the you said you hadn't learned the lessons what were the lessons that you needed to learn I needed to I needed to be be prepared with more resilience tools such such as well, personal development I, I learned more about personal development I needed to grow my confidence after mm. after, um, after um, a trauma it's quite common for people to lose confidence so I needed to rebuild my confidence and I just needed to live authentically again when I was in mm-hmm. Melbourne I certainly was not living authentically I needed to, to recreate a, a new life that was authentic again where the, my, the yang was was aligned with with my yin which which I've also done. How does one or how did you and therefore how do you recommend because I know that you're a life coach now um, how do how do you recommend people tap into and find out what is living authentically for them? Because everyone's different. So how did yeah. how did you find it? And then how did you rec- how do you recommend people find it for themselves? We we all actually know that it's just about tuning into your heart and asking yourself what what makes you really deeply deeply happy. What gives you deep deep joy? Okay, so then answer me this. If people then subconsciously know the answer and they don't take it, yeah. what what gives them or what can give them the push or the confidence, that inner self-confidence and almost that inner switching, that inner self-worth, which is obviously different to self-confidence, to say I am worthy of changing this situation to live authentically? What do you think is the biggest switch that you find within your clients that they have to sort of switch to, yes, I'm worthy to live this authentic self? I think it's a couple of things. It's finding the courage to make to make a change in your life, actually take – and sometimes you need to summon courage. I, I do draw upon a lot of various character virtues and, and courage is, is among them. So it's draw, summoning your courage to take that step. But oh, what was I going to I say? I suppose, Natalie, what, I, what I'm asking is what makes someone take that step compared to somebody else that doesn't take that step? What does it take? What's the difference? Yeah, so, because um, I think it's one thing yeah. to say, okay, everyone needs to have courage to take the step. But then some people do and some people don't. So what do you think is the difference between those that do and those that don't? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the difference is deciding to choosing choosing to take charge of your life choosing not to be a victim just choosing to to say no to victimhood and to recognize that this is my life i'm in charge of it i'm going to create a life that is meaningful purposeful rich fulfilling of whatever is important to you but it's it's um like all the what all the the storytellers in my books have in common is that they all say no to victimhood, and despite all the the, the many traumas and hardships they've been they've been through, they've all said no. I'm in charge. I'm going to create. I'm going to overcome this and create the life that I want. It's a choice. And, that, 
See, that's interesting. And that was one of the things that I wanted to get through in terms of doing the podcast, I think similar to, to the to your book, is to understand what makes people tick in terms of okay, yeah, they're gonna they they chose to overcome the adversity in their life. So then somebody else can listen to that episode and go, Okay, they've done it, then I can make the change too. And so I'm interested in terms of that, okay, so that's the common theme that they actively chose not to be a victim. Yes, yes. Hmm. I love um, Lindy, Lindy Chamberlain Creighton. Oh, I saw that in... you did, Lindy. Oh, yes. be... I'd love to have a chat with her. Yes, well. Yeah. Yes, yeah, see, I'll see if I can help with that because she's so – Oh, yeah. She's oh, such, perfect. Um, <laughs> she has such um, a loving, kind, generous spirit. Oh. So I uh, – in, in her story, she said, she said, in fact, the title of her story is Happiness is a Choice. She she chose to, to rise above that awful vilification. Um, I suppose, should we go into some background of what happened to Lindy Chamberlain sure. for those perhaps international people who, who sure. aren't aware of her? Lindy Chamberlain Creighton is a, is a household name in Australia, but internationally, for those international listeners, um, in the early 80s or mid yeah, early to mid 80s, 80s. Mm. yeah Lin, uh, lindy and her young family were, were camping at um, near uluru for a, a family holiday and tragically their little baby called azaria was taken by and killed by a dingo but uh, sadly lindy was accused of of murdering her own baby and was wrongfully charged and and sentenced and imprisoned for murdering her baby and she had a, a horrible time in in prison but mm. she and and then a few years later she the truth was was um was revealed that she was innocent and she was released but a bit like like very much like nelson mandela she's she's not bitter she has very, very a good reason to be bitter, but she's not. She's forgiving, um, kind, generous, and forgiving of the media and the public too, who vilified her. But she, she was says, very vilified. And for those that yeah. still, I'm sure that you probably have heard the the phrase which has been spun in the media: "A dingo ate my baby." And she said that out of. I mean, she was grief stricken and and panicked yeah. at the time when she said it to the media. But that was the catchphrase I suppose that they have played on loop in regards to her story as well so yes yeah and and Lindy says um Lindy says her her story is called happiness is a choice and she says get out of the get out of the darkness and into the sunshine as quickly as you can so and make that choice make that choice and then and then do it for some whatever character virtues you need and do it Mm. I noticed that you did also interviewed, um, wrote about Chef Matt Galinsky as well. Yeah, yes. Um, you had Dr. Craig Callan on. I've interviewed Dr. Craig Callan. He he was involved in the rescue of the Thai cave, the the Thai boys that were stuck in the cave. Um, some incredible people that you've you've that you've got in the book. Um, have we skipped chronologically in regards to the book? Have we missed a huge chapter in regards to how you got to write the book? <laughs> Uh, the the yosh um so the what were we up to with the, the cancer we recovered from the cancer mm. oh, i worked mm. for jane goodall institute resigned dived into the study of mind body medicine therapies and then and then developed a, a a resilience coaching business and then and then i think we're up to where we began now mm. uh, the book covid yeah that um covid struck and I thought this is a good time to to answer those questions of how of how do people rise and find happiness again? So, yes, I think you were asking me why, how I ended up on a yacht, living on a yacht. Yeah, because you ended up coming, you wrote the book on a yacht, so you've obviously yes. rebought another yacht and decided yes. to do yacht life. Yeah, it took me eleven years, eleven years before I could buy another yacht. Um, and I, and I did, and I'm so glad I did. It was because again, it was it's um, creating a life where my yang, outer world, is in, in alignment with my yin. Now, and explain with, this to me, Natalie. When you bought the yacht, I know yeah. you're doing a charter business before, but had you learned? Because initially, I mean, you went to the Bahamas 
you sailed with the dolphins and then you bought a, a charter business. But I would imagine you didn't know how to sail at the time, so you would have had Correct. captains on board. So did you learn? Did, were you self-taught to sail at this point when you bought the second yacht or...? I'm not, to be honest, I'm not a good sailor. I just follow instructions and make sure that I always have people on board who who are, are qualified and, and are good sailors. And I just follow follow instructions. So when I had the sailing charter business, I had a, a, a professionally qualified coxswain to mm-hmm. to take the charters. Um, but now I, I, just, I go sailing with people who know what they're doing. <laughs> And, um... So, so you employ. So, do you have friends that are qualified? Yeah, yes. Like, I don't know what's the correct term. Captains, seafarers, so to speak. <laughs> or did you yeah, do, friends who know, could... who have their boat licenses and, and know how to know how to sail? Okay. And, yeah. And I'm so I didn't know whether or not uh, you were employing these people to to no, do, or no. you're single handedly sailing. No, no. I'm so in awe of people who. Sing, sail solo. In fact, in my second book, my women's book, Campfire for a Woman's Heart, there is there is a story about a woman who sailed solo around the world. Who was it? Kay Cotty? No, Jacqueline Hope. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, looking forward to so the when, second book coming out. When um, my marriage ended, I thought about, and I, at the time that I moved to Melbourne, I thought about keeping the yacht that we had at the time and living on it in Melbourne. And I remember my father, with all good intentions, said to me, Natalie, that is the most stupid idea you've ever come up with, being protective. <laughs> so I, I heeded his, his words and, and we, we sold the yacht that was, you know, that was back in 2009. And ever since then, I always thought, oh, it would be such a good experience to live on a yeah, yacht. Yeah, you could have so just doctored the years later, yeah. 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 11 years later, I I managed to do that. And it was such a good um, a good experience. It teaches you to live, well, you're going through it now in, in the van life. So, you know, it teaches you to live simply. Mm. You meet other people, like in, in the marina people, the marina communities are really friendly. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's a different walk of life of people that it's brought me back to my backpacking days in terms of you're almost like a turtle or a snail. Everything you've got sort of in your back. This is obviously a bigger version of a backpack because we've got a kitchen and a shower and a toilet and, you know, we're it's glamping. We're not roughing it by any sense. But you are, I was actually just thinking about this today, about how simplified your life gets in terms of what is important. You have clothes on your back and fuel in the car and, you know, my husband and my cat and, you know, that's all that really matters. Um, So your world gets really small in that regard and and simplified as it did when I was, um, I was doing it solo and independently, but when I was backpacking. And I would imagine it would be the same thing when you're on a, when you're on a yacht as well. But it's interesting about, the one thing that I have noticed, because obviously I'm not in my early 20s doing it and I'm not a grey nomad doing this, which is great. Grey nomads are, for those that don't know overseas, are more retirees that are doing it. So I'm in this weird sort of a class of people that they sort of don't know what they're like, oh, you're really young doing this. And it's very interesting how people put those that have not done it or don't live this nomadic lifestyle, which is only temporary for us, put their own values in terms of, oh, you shouldn't be doing this or if it's risky or why, and they don't really understand it. Whereas those that have done a similar thing are so encouraging and and, and understand the benefits of it. It's, in, it's incredible. We've got a gentleman next door to us at the caravan park that we're staying at. He's been traveling around Australia for the last five years. Um, with his kid and living a very nom- homeschooling and living a really nomadic lifestyle and followed a circus for a while because he had friends in the circus and, you know, just just life experience that you'd no- never normally get. And it's – I think you can take the path everyone follows or the, t- the path that some people do. Yes, yes. Oh, well, as I said at the beginning, I – love adventure and and um i like to look outside of con- convention for you know, for, for an en- enjoying enjoyable life i have this um i just saw it it's what reminded me can you see this chain 
Yes. I usually, it's just a, um, for the listeners, it's about a 20 centimetre chunk of rusty anchor chain. And I usually keep it on my on um, my, my yacht, but I brought it in recently to to where I'm living now but to, to remind me because it's of why I, I keep it. I keep it because it's, a, to me, it's a symbol of the preciousness of life, which is what we were just talking about. Life is precious. When we were sailing up from the southeast of, of Queensland up to North Queensland, where I'm now living, last year, over two weeks, we found this bit of rusty anchor chain in or in the anchor chain. And had we not seen it, what the the yacht could have easily drifted, the, the chain could have snapped and that the yacht could have drifted onto rocks or onto a reef while we're sleeping. But luckily we did find it before that happened and, and cut it out. But the, the chain reminds me just how precious life is, how fragile life is, and that we should never, never take any of it for granted to really seize the day, make the most of life because, well, like well, my experience was cancer. We all have throughout our lives, unexpected events always happen. So this does remind me to just take, um, never take anything for granted and appreciate every day. When you were interviewing the people for your book and telling their stories in the book, did it you sort of, I mean, you mentioned that the common theme was that people didn't subscribe to victimhood and and so forth. But did you did you go in with an understanding of of um, overcoming adversity and that not subscribing to that victim mentality, and therefore um, it was a reaffirming of that, or did it teach you lessons when you wrote Campfire for the Heart? It was mainly affirming mainly mm. affirming um the the lessons that i've been that the the storytellers have been sharing with me i wish i had knew i wish i'd read these books myself back in 2009 when i was dealing with with my marriage ordeal um so they have been very affirming but sometimes they also have been stretching my my conception of of resilience too which i really love so i'm I'm learning as well, learning and affirming. What's next, Natalie? What's next for you now? Or are we just excited that you don't know and therefore take life as it comes? I like the way you say that reminds me of one of the storytellers in the women's book, Campfire for a Woman's Heart. She's she's from the Ukraine and she's a refugee. She came to Australia with her husband, two little girls and a suitcase as a refugee wow. in Australia from Ukraine. And she says that she doesn't know how her world is going to open and what the future holds for her. But she said, isn't it thrilling? It's such a thrilling space to be, the the unknown. And I just love that attitude. Instead of being frightened of the unknown, she's so grateful that we're grateful to be in this beautiful country and with her with her family. But her future is unknown, she said, and and isn't it thrilling? Is this one person? I mean, all the pe- all the stories that you wrote about and individuals are remarkable in their own right. But is there one in particular that stands out for you? Uh, no, not really. There are aspects of some that every story has certain aspects in it that um, that just makes me admire and respect the women so much and makes me proud to be a human. Every story makes me so mm. proud to be a human. Like, for, for example, Coralie Lever is a survivor of the Port Arthur Massacre. The Port Arthur Massacre was the largest um, murder by, by a single person in Australia mm. and it actually changed the, the gun laws in Australia. So Coralie was was there um, and her husband was was murdered there and she's she's a survivor. And her attitude of of life and carrying on, carrying um, her connection with with her community was very important and part of her recovery. Just it's just just so positive and makes the most. Despite the awful trauma she's had and the, the terrible loss, mm. she's just found so much peace and happiness and satisfaction in in helping others. 
and there's another story that I well I love all the stories to be honest but another mm. one I loved writing was about Kobe Steele who who he might some people might remember her name from the music the music industry a long time ago she used to when she when she was 19 she had a she was the host of a music television program and she um, fell in love and married an AC one of the ACDC band members had a baby girl and the her marriage uh, ended and the girl her daughter grew up 25 years old excited about her impending marriage she was in Amsterdam um, waiting in, on a push bike at a traffic light a truck came along and killed her daughter so Kobe was was um grieving for years and extremely depressed for for years about the loss of her daughter and then orangutans saved her she went to Borneo one of her her good friends insisted that she gets out of her house and and goes with him to Borneo and the orangutans will help her and they did and they actually she says they saved her life and so now she devotes her life to saving orangutans so there are Lots of stories in the books about how I've just gone have, all goosebumpy, Natalie. <laughs> they've, they've risen and found a purpose to help others, and by mm. and and the kindness by showing showing kindness and helping of service to others, it's actually healing for them as well. You put your story in the book. How was it writing and putting pen to paper and sharing your story? Uh, it's a bit. Um, a bit scary, yeah. Part, partly scary because I know there'll be judgment. I suppose mm. whenever you raise your head, and there will always that's be... my greatest fear: judgment. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, so there is fear, but but also balanced with that, it was therapeutic because when you write your own story about where you've been, where and your your journey from where you were to to where you are now and what you've learned along the way it's actually healing and therapeutic in itself it gives it gives value to your own journey value okay i was going to say does it it does it i know you said it gives value and it's therapeutic but does it also enable you to sort of really tangibly see how far you've come in terms of that as well emotionally emotionally and and mentally yeah and with 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 knowledge i just I'm so much mm. more aware now of of resilience tools and i'm mm. so mindful of them now in fact to, to the point um of when something happens now when an unwanted event happens now i consciously ask myself which tool or tools am i going to draw upon to um to cope with this or to, to manage this and i i either I usually just mentally list them and and use them, and that that's how I how I I cope with unwanted events now. What was the catalyst for you starting your resilience coaching? Wanting to help others because I need I wanted to be what I didn't have back in two thousand and nine when my marriage fell apart. I didn't know how harmful stress is to our mind and body. Mm. I wanted to I wanted to help people to to manage manage their stress in in healthy ways and rebuild their lives and to to support other people. So again that's I think the common theme in terms of your your book stories and and your story is there seems to be a common theme of giving back and helping others, helping the animals, helping others, um, advocacy work. It's, yeah, it's interesting in terms of it seems to be a lot of the the, the mental recovery comes from giving. Yes, and kind the virtue of kindness actually is a resilience tool in itself and so by um in fact that in the the women's book campfire for for a woman's heart that was one of the hero tools that 
I think every every woman included, in fact, not I think, I know absolutely every woman demonstrated their kindness. Even even the act of sharing their story is an act of kindness because they shared their story not to glorify themselves at all. They shared their story for one reason, and that is to in, inspire and help or, and give other people hope, to help other people. So that in itself is an act of kindness. But many many of the women and, and men in the first book found that helping helping others was instrumental in their own recovery. Where can people get the get the first book? The second book, the the women only one's not out yet. That's coming out. But Campfire of the Heart, where can people get it now? Uh, both books, well, Big Sky Publishing is the the publisher. So Campfire for for the Heart is available now in through Big Sky Publishing and all good bookstores. And Campfire for a, a Woman's Heart will be available early next year also through big sky publishing are you going to, are they going to do an audiobook version of it uh possibly i i hope so possibly we're cert- certainly um trying trying for that fingers we're crossed natalie people have asked yeah <laughs> well everyone needs to go out and get the books and natalie um please plug your resilience coaching as well where can people find your resilience coaching on my through my website stockdalewellbeing.com perfect and i'll share it in the show notes of the podcast thanks natalie thank you thank you fiona thanks very much it's been a pleasure it has been i've loved our chat Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 